Great to see everyone. Uh, we are uh, continuing in our series Ecclesia, which we started last week. And this is a, a five-week series kind of looking at the importance of the church. Why does church matter? And we're doing that by investigating five unique metaphors uh, that are given in Scripture to uh, describe what the church actually is. And last week we considered the church as the body of Christ. Jesus is the head and that every member uh, has a part to play, that there's a uniqueness to each of you, but that uniqueness is not discovered through this kind of individualistic impulse of our culture which says I am defined by my separation from others, but our uniqueness as persons, which I think person is a better word than individual, is defined by our connection to one another. We discover our unique gifts in the place by which we can contribute to the body by being connected to the body. Uh, it also spoke of just the importance of us understanding that every person plays a role in the health of the church uh, and that if we're the body of Christ, that means that we are to be what? A visible manifestation of the invisible God. We're to be a reflection of Jesus to the world. And they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another, but you have to be close enough to another to actually show that you love another. And so there is a need for connectivity, but there's also a call to, to contribution. Every member is vital to the health of the whole body. And that because it's a mystical union with Christ, we often are unaware of the spiritual implications of coming into the church, but refusing to be the body. Uh, refusing to be a part in the body, thinking that I don't really matter or my lack of involvement or my secret sin or whatever it is, uh, isn't really impacting anyone. There is a spiritual impact to the whole body when one member hurts. And, and, and there's a responsibility of the whole body to care for and nurture those parts in the body that are hurting or weaker or new to the body. <laughs> and so we've got to care for it. Just like we care for our human bodies, we've got to care for the body of Christ. And that's, I think, a really beautiful metaphor that speaks to the need for connection as well as the idea that we've got to begin to believe that I actually have a role to play in this community for the purpose of making Jesus known to the world. Um, today we're gonna consider the church as the bride of Christ. And this is a really uh, important metaphor because to speak of the church as the bride is to speak of the church in terms of marriage. And when I say marriage, I'm saying a biblical understanding of the mystical union of, of, it says that the man shall leave, what does it say? For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And he says this is a profound mystery. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter five. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church that the marriage union, one man, one woman in a covenantal union, you know, I, when Door of Hope began, uh, you know, it was filled with singles that were between the ages of 18 and 25, and I married, I think I counted it up, it was, it was around like 75 or 76 weddings in the first five years, uh, which was crazy. And believe me, this was like 2000 and, this is from 2010 to like 2015. So it was the era of Portland being the sort of the hipster capital of the world where everyone thought they were living in 1890 and the, the sign that you were truly from the city was dependent upon having a curly mustache and buying a hatchet that you'll never use. Um, so this is a, you know, this is the time when I was doing endless amounts of weddings at Mount Hood because kids love to pretend that they were outdoorsy. Uh, and it's also the time when I got lost trying to get to a wedding where I was an hour late. Uh, and while I made the, the bride's 94 year old grandma sit in the sun for, for 90 degree weather for, for like an hour 
and then looked at me with such disdain when I showed up. Uh, how dare you? So I quit doing weddings after that. Uh, but it's, it's fascinating because again and again, all the years of, of doing marriages, one of the things that came up consistently was the request for texts. Like, I like to, I'm like, we're going to do the, the, the wedding. I want it to be something, if you're asking me to do it, it's because you're a part of the church and you want, you want your relationship with Jesus to be central in that wedding ceremony. I was actually surprised by how many times I was asked to not use Ephesians chapter 5 in the wedding ceremony because of its supposed offensiveness or what they viewed as like a patriarchal or misogynistic overtone by which the man dominates over the woman. And it was all around this, this little word that the Bible seems to care a lot about, and it's the word submission. When we talk about the church as the bride of Christ, we can't talk about what it means to be the bride without talking about submission and love. Those are the two things that actually, I believe, are at the root of every marriage disillusion is a breakdown in, in mutual surrender or submission and a breakdown in love. And this is why this metaphor is so profound for the church because we can be absolutely orthodox. We can have right doctrine and be totally dead because what the church needs to represent to the world is the only thing that's tangibly grasped, that the world can grasp tangibly is our ability to love. And I was working on this thing. The elders kind of asked me to put together what would, in my mind, be the most important thing. And we're kind of all trying to do this is like if we're going to be planting multiple Door of Hope churches, then we have to ask the question of what kind of pastor should be leading these churches. And the first thing that came to mind, I, I did this as an as a exercise this week uh, with, a, with a friend. And, I, and he's like, what's the most, what is an, a must in the lead pastor. And the first thing that came to mind is they have to really love Jesus. That's the most important thing to me. They must really love Jesus. Now, I believe really loving Jesus is gonna include orthodoxy and a right understanding of doctrine. But I have met too many people that have right doctrine or loyalty or fidelity to, to, uh, to doctrine, to ways of living, to calling out heresy, but have almost no love. I've also seen the other side of that where there's the libertine mentality, and I've seen both in Door of Hope, the libertine mentality where it's, I'm loved and can do whatever I want, and it, the, the world, they're so reflective of the world that it makes no difference. Or I've seen the legalistic side where they're so foreign to anything actually human <laughs> that it makes no difference. No, what we need is to be a people that are about our first love. And to speak of marriage is to speak of love and submission. This is a profound mystery, Paul says. And listen, it's challenging to use marriage as a metaphor in an age where marriage is being seen as less and less necessary, even being viewed with greater and greater skepticism. I mean, we are living in an unprecedented time in which the whole concept of the nuclear family is being turned upside down on its head. But we can't ignore that this is a continual uh, metaphor given uh, to the relationship between God and his people. I like what Chesterton wrote, G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite writers ever, and English thinker, wrote a book called What is Wrong with the World in like 1908. I love the, the opening line, he says, what's wrong with the world is that we do not ask what is right. I think that's a really profound statement, but he said this in a whole chapter on marriage. He said, if Americans, I love that, it's like he, he was pointing the finger across the ocean like it's definitely America's fault. Um, he goes, if Americans can be divorced for incompatibility. America at this time was known for being very progressive in its idea of like individual rights. And so, so it kind of led the way in, in marriage becoming something that could be dissolved when people didn't 
we're no longer compatible. Listen, I'm the product of, of, of divorce. My mom and my dad divorced when I was one. I went through two stepdads after that in school. So I know how painful and damaging divorce is. And if some, there's some of you, I'm sure, in this room that have gone through a divorce and you know there's a reason why it says that God hates divorce because he knows how bad it hurts people. Uh, there is no divorce that happens without there being carnage. It just, it's an inevitability. It is a heartbreaking thing, no matter how amicable it can be. So this is, this is something that, that Chesterton says. He goes, if Americans can be divorced for incompatibility of temper, I cannot conceive why they are not all divorced. I have known many happy marriages, but never a compatible one. The whole aim of marriage is to fight through and survive the instant when incompatibility becomes unquestionable. For a man and a woman, as such, are incompatible. And all the ladies said, amen. <laughs> so the mystery of the marriage and the family unit is such, I mean, I, I live in a household of four. My wife, Darcy, we are coming up on our 24th uh, wedding anniversary. October is when our anniversary, but in May, we'll have been together 25 years. And much of what I will share about marriage is going to be from my experience. I can't speak. There are always exceptions to rules. So I don't want to be dogmatic about this is how all of your marriages exactly work. But I can speak from the experience of pastoring now for, well, pastoring almost now for getting close to 20 years and, and being the lead pastor for 11 years and counseling many couples in turmoil. And there are common threads that cannot be ignored. And weirdly, it always seems to line up with what the scripture already says. So, you know, I'm not a psychologist, um, but I do feel like you can learn a lot about psychology by just reading the scriptures and living life with people. And, and there is much that I have learned through my own failures in marriage, and believe me, there have been many failures. Uh, and both Darcy and I, we weren't even Christians when we got married, so, I mean, we did everything wrong. We moved in together, we, you know, I mean, yeah, it's like... We, we can't tell our kids how to do anything. They're like, what do you, how do you date? I don't know. My, your mom took me home the first night we met, so don't do what I did. I guess that's all I can say. This is why I'm not allowed to do premarital, because I'm not helpful. <laughs> so I'm like, I just always go, wow, that's hard. I don't know. I didn't do that, because I wasn't a believer. I was a complete pagan. So, uh, and by the grace of God, Darcy and I are together, because usually it doesn't work out with how we did things. Um, and it almost didn't. And there were many times where our marriage was on the, on the brink of, of closure. And I think God had his sovereign hand upon us, uh, which is an interesting thing. So where I wanna begin is here in Ephesians 5, and I wanna deal directly, first and foremost, with the text that can create so much controversy because of its misuse and abuse in the church, uh, and I think also uh, because of the climate and the culture that we live in, uh, a text like this can be difficult, but I think it's because it's not understood correctly. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verse 21 um, through 24, and I th 21 is the verse that's often left out when this, when this passage is misused. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I think that this passage, this is the particular passage that I have been asked before. Can you not use that passage? Um, it, like, I, we have non-believing parents, they'll find that really weird, it'll sound archaic, it will sound misogynistic. And I always like to say, like, listen, it begins with this passage, submit yourself to one another out of reverence to Christ. It goes on to say, husbands, love your wives. So, why this passage here? 
is apply, been applied inappropriately, inappropriately to only wives submit, you would have to apply that same logic then to husbands, then only husbands love. Only a husband has to love and only a wife has to submit. No, that's not the case. It's saying wives submit because, because it is easy for I've, my experience and what I've seen often is that, that when husbands don't love well, wives don't feel safe. When wives don't feel safe, they don't trust. When they don't trust, it's difficult to submit. I think it goes all the way back to the garden. It goes back to the very declaration that through the fall that there would be both men and women cannot live without each other, but they also have a hard time living together. And it says that women, it says your desire, you will have struggle and your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And so it speaks of this tension or this perversion that enters into the relationship between men and women uh, that due to sin that God wants to help unravel and bring us back to that Edenic state in which there was no shame. The two shall become one flesh. They will, they will no longer be ashamed. It become, it's supposed to be a safe, sacred place where there is mutual submission. The wife is told to submit because that will be the area that is the most difficult for her. The husband is told to love because that will be the area that is the most difficult for him. And, it, and I have seen this again and again played out and it is generally true. I rarely hear of a husband saying, I don't trust my wife. And I rarely, he I, uh, I rarely hear of a wife saying, I can't love my husband. I feel like it is, it is the opposite. It's like, I, I trust my wife, but she always complains I'm not present with her. Or I love my husband, but I don't trust him. I don't feel safe. And so I think that this, this dynamic is interesting. It helps us. This message is not primarily about marriage, but we have to talk about marriage if we're going to understand what it means to be the bride of Christ as the church. And I think this plays out in our relationship with Jesus, how difficult it is for us to both submit to Jesus and to love him. And you can't have one without the other. Just as it goes in the marriage, I can't love my wife well if I'm not present with her. And she's not gonna submit to me if she doesn't feel cared for by me. And so this unique passage that wraps around, we have to understand first and foremost that submission requires implicit trust. The call in verse 18 is to stand by your man. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. One of the issues is that the abuse of this text, it turns it into wives are to be subservient to their husbands by, by submitting without question. In, in silent submission, you march quietly behind your husband, helping him fulfill his dreams. That is a really disturbing interpretation of Scripture. Because remember, Eve was not taken out of the back of Adam. She was taken out of his side. And she wasn't taken out of his side and placed alongside him to fulfill his dreams and his visions. She was taken out of his side so that together the two would become the image bearers of God for the man and the woman together bear the image of God. And in that union, they can fulfill God's mission and his vision. It is through a wife's submission to her husband flows naturally in this context out of her seeing her husband fully submitted to the Lord and submitted to one another out of love and reverence to the Lord. I can submit myself to my husband's leadership. Darcy would say, she, we're both type A's. My wife and I are both type A's. My wife is the confrontational one who is like, is fearless and afraid of no one. If she sees injustice, she will advance upon that with aggression. But if you've met Darcy, she's also the most gentle. It's like hard for people to even get their heads around it. But Darcy's the one, if we're at a restaurant and something goes bad or we have rude service or something, she'll be like, honey, why don't you take the kids outside? I'll be right out. <laughs> so, so I, yeah, our relationship is unique. She is definitely alongside me 
<laughs> for sure. If you're ever wondering, like, I don't, I feel like there needs to be more female influence at Door of Hope than you are. You do not know me uh, because I trust my wife implicitly. I, I, I trust her wisdom almost over anyone that I know on earth because she lives alongside me. She knows me better than anyone. And it is actually our friendship and her, her desire, she's like, she told me, she goes, I didn't realize that. I never understood the idea of submitting to your husband until I realized that when I don't feel safe, I grasp for control and I don't enjoy it because I want you to lead. But when she says that, when she says, I want you to lead, what she means is she's like, I want you to, to participate in a way where we are confident that you're listening to Jesus that you're walking with Jesus. And she's like, it frees me and I feel able to be myself. It's when we're in those unhealthy places where I don't feel like I'm being, uh, I, I don't feel like she's trusting me and she doesn't feel like I'm loving her that you get those moments of disconnect. And so we've seen the truthfulness of the scripture played out. I am not a domineering husband, but when I submit to Jesus, and I, and I follow hard after him, and I live sacrificially, she naturally wants to walk alongside me and me alongside her. There is this beautiful mutual submission. You guys, when you apply that to the church, you have to take into consideration that we live in a culture that is anti-authoritarian. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We don't want someone to, it's like we desperately want to follow but at the same time, we have this repulsed kind of attitude toward authority. We don't want people saying, hey, this is what the scripture says. What are you going to do with that? We don't want people getting in our business. And we are definitely that way in our spirituality. We want parts of the. I'm always shocked at how many people come to Door of Hope that love being a part of it, but actually don't believe a lot of what's said. They're, they're like, I'm, I accept this part of the church, but I don't accept that part. You know, I'm like, I know what Jesus says about, about sexuality, but I'm going to sleep with my girlfriend anyway. I don't really care. Because whatever, like, it, I, just, I just reject that part. I just, it seems archaic. Listen, it's not archaic. If the eternal God speaks truth, we have to believe that the truth flows out of who he is. And if he created you in his image, he knew what he was doing. And that every demand that Jesus makes is not to be a cosmic killjoy, but his demands are meant to set us free. And we are capable of being liberated by our own efforts to control our lives. Our liberation flows out of our surrender. Our liberation in our marriage flows out of mutual surrender. Our liberation as a Christian body flows out of our surrender to Jesus as Lord. And we can trust the one who submitted himself, we're told, to the point of death. So that we, who were full of sin, can become the righteousness of God because he who knew no sin became sin. That is the power of the gospel. Submission is a beautiful thing. It requires trust. And what it is, is it's, it's I can follow Jesus because he has proven himself trustworthy again and again and again. It's directly connected to faith. The church is the bride of Christ is a church that lives with a robust faith, a disposition of trust toward Christ that allows Christ the right to be himself in and through our lives. And just as the husband, the man and woman together become one flesh, so the church has a mystical union with Christ by which we reflect or represent Christ in the world in which we live. And that's where this idea of even headship, headship, we think of it kind of in this like pecking order. And what it is is a distinction in roles, just as Jesus is the representative man. He stands in the gap. He's the one for the many. On the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for all of us. He becomes our representation. And he represents us as one who loves us and lays his life down for us. I am called to be a representative of my family. I represent Darcy when I go about my business and she represents me. 
And that is that beautiful picture of oneness. And you kind of get that. The longer you live with someone, how you, you like, your, you and your spouse will use the same terms or phrases. Even our family, like we have lingo that it just, it's, it's like our family becomes this representation. There's a oneness and yet there's four unique people that live there. It's very much a, should be a visible picture of our union with the invisible God. And so I think that this is a powerful and beautiful, um, beautiful piece of scripture that speaks to even our marriages are meant to reflect what it looks like to be one with Christ, but our oneness with Christ should actually impact our marriage union as well. This is, this is the first step in understanding what it means to be the bride of Christ. Submission is necessary for freedom and it comes through our implicit trust that Jesus is trustworthy and worth following. Secondly, love requires attention. In Ephesians 5, 25 through 29, it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here's the catch. is like, it's not surprising that wives don't want to submit to one that doesn't love them well because they can't trust them to be present. So Paul is touching on a nerve that continues to be, isn't it funny that there is nothing new under the sun? That, that Mary Carr was right, a dysfunctional family is any family that has more than one member. <laughs> and, and he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. By the way, guys, this is not like a wooden literal thing that the, the way to your wife's heart is to read scripture to her in bed. Okay, I mean, if she wants you to do that, great. But what Paul is saying is that you need to embody the living word, Christ. That you walking a holy life in intimacy with Jesus is going to impact. It's going to infect the environment around you. How close you are with Jesus will impact and affect the environment or how not close you are with Jesus will affect and impact the environment. We become like what we give ourselves to. We are what we love. And th this is fascinating. He says, Jesus revealed his love through what? Love and sacrifice, that's almost like saying the same thing twice. Sacrificial love is the only kind of love from a biblical perspective when we talk about agape. Saving love is always sacrificing love. And he's, he gave himself for the church. And we are to love with the love of Christ. I love this. He says, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and they care for it, for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Now, from a practical standpoint, as a married man, the greatest challenge throughout our entire marriage is, for me, has been this passage. I am crazy about my wife. Literally, after 25 years of being together, I still, when I see her, I get giddy. We had like a date night last night, and Darcy, like, she's like, we're going to be good empty nesters. I'm like, yes, we are. I hear couples all the time that like, that's actually one of the main times where divorce happens is that their kids leave and they realize they actually don't have a friendship and they don't know each other. They've been just partners. And I think that this speaks to the church. If we don't know why it is that we're doing what we're doing or gathering, if we don't know whom it is that has purchased us with this blood, if we don't, if we don't, if we don't submit to him and we don't love him, it, we're gonna, after a while, be like, why are we doing this? Why do you think people are divorcing the church? They don't know what they're involved in any longer. They don't know why they gather. What's the purpose of it? We've gone a whole year and I'm actually nothing has changed in my life. It wasn't any different when I went than when I don't go. So why go? And that's exactly what religion gives. But that's not what relationship gives. And the greatest threat to a marriage generally from, uh, where I see men fail more often than women, and like I said, there's exceptions to rules, where my greatest failure in marriage is my inability to show love through really being present. 
Because isn't it amazing that I can be in a room sitting next to my wife or my kids on a couch and be a million miles away? Isn't that the, the, nothing can make a person feel more unsafe than to be with a person that doesn't seem like they're actually there with them. Like it was actually easier at times when I toured full time because I actually was physically distant away. So it, it gave a, it, it, actually, it actually reminded me of the reality, the physical distance reminded me of how necessary it was to stay close. But sometimes when you're with the person every day, that's when you can become strangers in the midst because you forget that relationship requires proximity, but it also requires intention. Love requires intentional attention. That's the reality. That it's possible to be with your wife, but not be there. It's possible to sit with your kids. I, so my daughter is really wise and she should be a therapist. She's 15. And she had this big talk with me. When I get really stressed, I get really obsessed with things. And it's been a stressful season just with COVID and riots and home remodel. And, you know, there was a lot of transition in the church leading up to the year of COVID. And I mean, it's just a stressful season. And stress begins to, when I don't deal with it, it manifests weird. My manifestation of stress is I get obsessed with unimportant things. And it becomes really obvious because I love to show people what I'm obsessed with. So, and music has always been my go-to when I want to check out. And so Hattie had this talk with me the other day because she started singing with, we started recording some music together. So I got kind of obsessed with it. And then I get obsessed with, well, I want to know what the kids are about these days. And then all of a sudden I'm listening to more like teenage pop music than my two kids and like, you know, giving them every subgenre of like, we got hyper pop, we got, we got bedroom pop, we got indie pop, like this is the greatest thing. Have you heard this man? And she's just like, dad, okay, we get it. You're cool, dad. Great. I don't want to hear any more bands. And I'm like, what? How could you? She's like, I want you, I don't want you to just show me music. I want you to ask me how I'm doing. And I was like, go ahead, stab me just right here two more times. That is like was so convicting because in my mind I'm like I'm being with her but I wasn't being with her because I wasn't meeting her where she is at and Darcy's like honey it's the greatest challenge is to be present you tell me you love me you tell me I'm beautiful every day but will you go for a walk with me will you talk and engage and enter into my life will you make my interest your interest isn't that interesting that what I do to Hattie is what we often do to Jesus? It's like we just show and tell him, if, if we even take time to talk with him at all, it's, it's about our stuff. But how often are we saying, Lord, what do you want to say? What's your heart? How do you feel about me? How do you feel about our life together? Do you engage with Christ in the way that actually speaks to the fundamental belief that you aren't just chasing after an ideology, but that you're actually engaged with the living Christ who is present, always closer to you than you are to your own thoughts. If it's difficult for you to love people whom you can see well, you can understand how difficult it may be to say, I really love Jesus, but it is the most fundamental thing. And submission and love go hand in hand. Our surrender to Christ is the very thing that allows the Spirit to pour out the love of Christ into our hearts and our minds so that we can know that we are loved and that we have the capacity to love back. And that's that you're born into this covenantal reality that is so necessary if we want to actually make any kind of difference in the city, in our families, in our community, in our world. And I think that this is one of those things, love requires attention and submission requires trust. And those areas, I think that trust and attention are greatly impacted because for us as a church that is now 11 years old, it is easy for our love to grow cold. Familiarity breeds contempt, they say. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think a superficial familiarity breeds contempt. 
but real familiarity should bring sacred romance. And sacred romance is the thing that we need in the church in this moment. I wanna close with this passage that Jesus uses in Revelation as he speaks to seven churches, seven physical churches, seven locations, churches that were founded in that apostolic period. And he speaks to the church. And it's easy for us to read these passages as he's speaking to individuals. And he is speaking as, as a husband to his bride. And we are the bride of Christ. And the church of Ephesus is a really interesting bride that is worth noting. Listen to what it says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars. That's speaking of the churches, by the way. It's a symbol of the churches. The seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Also a picture of the churches. So the churches are to be this witness to the world. And notice what it says first thing about Jesus. He who holds the stars in his hand. It means that the church is his possession. It says that you have been purchased with a price, but he walks among the lampstands, which means that not only is the church his possession, but it is also the place where he is present. And it says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. He begins with legitimate, he's not being, you know, it's easy to read (laughs) this with a very like millennial perspective of like, I think he's being sarcastic because he's gonna rebuke them. So there's no way he could compliment them if he also is mad at them. No, he actually is complimenting them for the things that are worthy of complimenting. And then he rebukes them for where they're failing. (laughs) And he says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. So he's like, hey, you got right doctrine. You're protectors of the gospel. Good for you. And he really means that. He's like, "You, you know what's evil and you know what's good. You even, you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You, 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 are, you are defenders of the faith and you, you fight against heresy because you know it hurts the church. And he goes, you have persevered. They've endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So they have been willing to even be persecuted for the name of Jesus. But then he says, yet yeah, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Notice the, the marriage is merely contractual at this point. There's no intimacy. We're just, you know, we're business partners. We're gonna do this work together, but there's no passion. You've left your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. In other words, church, if you cannot witness to my love, if you don't know how loved you are by me and cannot reveal that love, I literally will have to remove my light and give it to a church that can do it. Because his mission is the same to seek and save that which is lost. And the way that he does that is not through our adherence to sound doctrine. That's a part of it. But sound doctrine needs to flow out of a radical understanding that on your worst day, Jesus is crazy about you. That he died for you, not because you're lovable, but because it's his nature to love. And that his resurrection life actually has the power to change individuals. That it's not just this this idea that we have to will ourselves toward believing, but there is actually a supernatural transformation. Door of Hope needs an injection of the Holy Spirit, okay? We need to be a church that awakens to a passion for Christ because I think we've, been a, we've done a good job of maintaining our orthodoxy. I think we've done a good job of staying true to the gospel of believing God at his word, but I also think that for many, including myself at times, it's become rote. It's become, it's become repetition without life. It's become a questioning of what are we doing? Hasn't COVID created that sense? 
I was thinking about how Darcy said this to me last night. We went on this walk yesterday and it was so life-giving. And it was just one of those moments where I like, I'm not gonna stay home and read a book today. I'm gonna make my wife's interests my interest. And we went on this lovely walk and it was just so life-giving. And it just reminded me, that time alone with her just reminded me, this woman is stinking amazing. I am so glad I get to live the rest of my life on this earth with her. And it's like the fact that it's just like, I just need, we need those moments of intimacy to remind us. You know, it's not like you get to live on the Mount of Transfiguration every day, but we still need the Mount of Transfiguration to remind us of what it was like when you had those holy moments. Yes, most of life is spent in the valley, but, there is, but we don't have to let passion die. We don't have to let romance die because real romance, sacred romance is both the combination of the familiar, it needs to be cozy like home, a place of safety, but it also needs to continually be an adventure. And that is a powerful and profound reality when the church captures that. And this is why Jesus goes on to say that there are, there are three realities that are gonna help us return to that first love. Because you can ask the question of, of how do I know that I've lost my first love? Well, there are th I think Ray Steadman was right when he said there are really three signs. The first is just there's a loss of joy around the things of faith. It's really hard to read your Bible, it's hard to pray, you're not excited any longer. That's one of the stages of, the, you know, the dangers of drifting are real. It is easy to drift. Drifting takes no effort. You just let go and go with the flow of the stream. And the longer you drift, behavior that once convicted you when you fell into, when you don't deal with it, after a while you will excuse it. And after a while from that, you won't even think about it or be convicted by it. It's what we call the, 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 the drifting toward a hardness of heart. Doesn't it say that the wrath of God is this, that he gives people over to what they want? Fine, you don't wanna be in a covenant with me? I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you choose what I would never choose for you because relationship demands that. See, the most dangerous place by which freedom can be abused is actually after you've been set free. When you were dead in your sin, you didn't feel guilty about sin because you were dead. I always said like, I loved sinning when I was an unrepentant sinner because I didn't know it was bad. I, all I could see is like, why do I keep feeling worse and worse? But I still couldn't connect the dots. So, oh yeah, those drugs and going through multiple women, like that's not bringing life to me. I, I'm feeling a, this weight, but I couldn't define it. It's amazing how quickly I discovered after I came to faith where those few times in that first year where I kind of went back to my old ways for just a moment, because I still hadn't fully made sh like complete shifts. And I was like, what was behavior that once was fun was now like, whoa, I, that, I feel, whoa, I don't feel right. That doesn't feel right. I can't do that anymore. I remember like for the first time feeling conviction over something I watched or music that wasn't, that was, speaking to me in a way that wasn't life-giving or I, like there was a sensitivity. I, I would argue I got overly sensitive for a while, but, I, but there was, a, there was a, a transition. This is the power. Uh, the loss of joy and the glow of the Christian life is, where, is when, when sin actually isn't even impacting you anymore because you've let it go and the light becomes dimmed and we become blind to the presence of Christ. You lose your ability to love others. All of a sudden now the church is a place that judges me. Isn't it funny how quickly people will run away from the church? Because the church becomes a reminder that they're not right with God and, and they, they project that guilt onto what others are, guests do, are doing to them. I know that as a pastor because I get those emails. And I'm like, I actually don't even know who you are but clearly you think that I'm responsible for, for what you're going through. And I, and man, I get it, I get it. I know what it's like to go to a church and feel like the message was like, I think they wrote that about me. Um, <laughs> so there, there's also the, the loss of a healthy perspective of ourselves. We come blind to our own brokenness. I think that these are the things that are the outcome of, of drifting. 
But Jesus gives us the way back to sacred romance. And it's really simple. And it's so memorable because it's, it's alliteration at its finest. I'm sure like Warren Wearsby came up with this. Uh, but it's the three things that he says. Remember, repent, and repeat. Remember what it was like when you first fell in love with me. That's the first thing he says. Like Nat King Cole's song, Once in a While, in love's smoldering ember, one spark may remain. If love can still remember, the spark may burn again. It's a really beautiful line because Darcy and I just watched our wedding video like a couple weeks ago. And there's a scene where she's being put into the Jeep after the wedding. Like there was like, People were throwing like rice at us and we had this little red Jeep and her wedding dress was so big. And I just remember like just cramming her into the front seat and then she's just sitting there with this glowing smile and it's so cool because it's VHS, which is so hip right now, you know? Uh, and like all grainy and weird and she's just like this glow and I just had to pause it and take a picture of the screen because the dress is like around her head. Like it's just like around her. And she's just in this ball of white just glowing, and I was like, man, remember how that felt? And she's like, hey, do you have the VHS tape of early Man Ray performances, like around the time that I met you? And I'm like, yeah. So we watched that, and she's like, that just made me so giddy. I just remember what I felt when I watched you sing up there in your eye makeup and dog chain, just so romantic. And, but it just, it just created, it was like we remembered what it was like to fall in love, and it rekindles that this is my person. Still, this is my person. It's beautiful. And then I, I think of that, that second word, rep repent. Repentance is a beautiful word that is a perpetual act of the believer. It's not an ugly word. It's not a one-time repent and be saved. It's repent and live. Because all repenting is, is you were going this way. Now you're going this way. You were, you were drifting. Now you're swimming against the current. You were, you were losing sight and you were, you were giving your affection and your time and your mental energy. You were submitting yourself to things that are actually killing you rather than to your marriage. You were, you were focused on things that, that were actually taking you away from the relationship. Now you're, you're redirecting that energy, redirecting that focus. And isn't life, isn't that why we love January? It's a constant reset, right? We're gonna get back to what we didn't do last year so that we can not do it again this year, right? Isn't that what the gym is? Every year, January 1st is repentance over the gym. And then it becomes another year where we pay for the gym and, and don't abuse it because we don't go. Um, they count on you for doing that. Now, now we can't go, so you don't even have to worry. You don't even have to repent of that one this year because you can't go. Um, but think about that. Repentance is just a change of direction. It's getting back on track. It's coming back, it's resetting the mind. Like this is life-giving, this is not life-giving. Repeat, do the first acts again. Repeat those things that you did when you first fell in love. Do you remember what it was like when you met Jesus? Do you remember how excited you were? Maybe this is one of the few benefits of coming to faith late in life is I remember what it was like to fall in love with Christ. And, and I feel it deeply when I drift because I miss him. Have you ever missed Jesus? It's not that he's gone, but you can't miss him if you had never noticed <laughs> that he was there before. You can't miss someone that you've never met. And if there's a holy longing in you, it's because the, the longing speaks to the possibility of fulfillment. And the absence of God shouldn't scare you because if God feels absent, that means that you've at one time known his presence. And that's part of the ebb and flow of covenant. The beautiful thing of a covenant is not every moment in a marriage is gonna be fire and romance. But we have the possibility to return again and again to that intimacy that we had when we first fell in love. And it's a different, it is different. The romantic love of first is it's all mystery and no coziness at first. It's all like, I might blow this at any moment and I'm not that familiar. But the power when, when romance becomes that continual blend of this is my safe place and I can't wait to see what happens, that is where the power is and that's where Jesus wants to take us as a church. Where we discover the safety of being in his hands 
and the adventure of being his people. And we're so in love with him, we can't wait to tell others about him. I submit to you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. This is the call of the church, and this is what it means to be his bride. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to transform our lives. And we just pray in this day that we would be a people who recognize that we love you only because you first loved us. We want to realign our hearts and our minds toward you. We want to repeat those actions Maybe some here don't remember what it's like to first fall in love with you, but even those that have grown up in the faith, those that truly know you have had to have a moment where they just know. Maybe it was when they were 12 or 10 or 8 even, or maybe even younger. Maybe it was in high school where their faith became their own. But Lord, for those that feel like you're a million miles away, Lord, I pray that you would reveal that maybe it's us like the prodigal son who have walked a million miles away from you. Maybe we just need to be reminded today that you will leave the 99 to find the one. That like Hosea, you pursue your unfaithful bride. And Lord, forgive us for our adulterous hearts, the way that we give ourselves to other lovers that rob us of joy and damage our hearts and our minds and our witness. Thank you that none of it takes you by surprise, that in our weakness, your power is made perfect. So we just surrender our lives to you and we give you, as your bride, you get all of us, the good and the bad, and we just surrender to you and ask that by the power of your spirit, you would use us foolish vehicles us foolish vessels who, like me, often find themselves, we're like leaky cups. <laughs> Thank you that you have the ability to use us in spite of our brokenness. And Lord, often you use us most powerfully because of our brokenness. So we just acknowledge our desperate need for you today. We submit and we love because we have first been loved and because you submitted yourself unto death for us. May we reveal that same reality, making visible our invisible God to a hurting world. We pray this in your name, Jesus, amen.